So good evening, everyone. I am really excited about this episode of Curiouser and Curiouser. Welcome to uh, my parent crime, Olivia, for this episode. Hello. 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 Thank you for having me. I'm quite excited. I've got... I'm so excited. We share a, a sort of history obsession, and especially the Gilded Age. So this is this is going to be a fun one. Yes. Um, so I personally am, am obsessed with New York history. And at one point years ago was on one of the junior boards of the New York Historical Society. And for as long as I can remember, have taken walks with fabulous historians. And um, I became really interested in the Gilded Age, probably, I want to say, around, uh, what is it now, 2022? Um, I want to like, like maybe eight years ago, um, and really became interested because I saw a picture on a book. And um, it's a book that I recommend. It's called Fortune's Children. Uh, it's by, I forget the first name, but the last name is Vanderbilt. I believe it's William Vanderbilt. It's by an, a descendant of the, one of the Vanderbilt families. Um, and it shows a picture looking up Fifth Avenue. It's unrecognizable because during those days, there were mansions all up and down Fifth Avenue that were built by sort of the very, very wealthy, you know, the robber barons, the rich of the Gilded Age. Um, and as a, somebody that studied architecture, I was fascinated because that is not the facade that you see looking up Fifth Avenue, which is a very commercial area up there, you know, from the like 40s and 50s all the way right up to when you get to the plaza when it starts to become more residential. And so I was fascinated by that picture. It was a colorized picture and found out that the Vanderbilts had built all of those buildings. And it was fascinating to understand that the wealth that it create was created in one or two generations was completely was spent and destroyed in the same number of generations. Um, and all of those mansions were demolished. And that's really got me what interest got me very interested in the Gilded Age. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, it's centered around the Vanderbilt family. Um, and I was particularly interested in a woman named Alva Vanderbilt, who was well before her time, uh, she married Willie K. Vanderbilt, who was a Cornelius uh, Commodore Vanderbilt's grandson. Um, and, uh, you know, at that time, the Vanderbilts were not, they were considered new money and uh, were not part of what was called New York society. So, um, and I will just take a step back. And for anybody that doesn't know what the Gilded Age is, it was a period in the United States from uh, the late 1800s, around 1880s to, you know, 1910, 1920, uh, which saw sort of the unprecedented rise of, uh, there was, first of all, huge gaps in wealth. So there was terribly poor people. Uh, Jacob Reese uh, had done a picture book called How, How the Other, La Other Half Lives, which talks about shanties and, you know, basically the Lower East Side. And you can still see them. You go and you see sort of the the oil uh, tin ceilings uh, where the immigrants, the Italians and the Irish and, uh, you know, all these immigrants that were basically servants and of those classes lived. And then you had this phenomenal wealth um, that was created by the robber barons uh, and what's called the Second Industrial Revolution. Uh, it was, you know, uh, the steel mills and iron and the railroads 
Um, and we're talking about sort of names, you know, such as you know, Cornelius Vanderbilt and uh, Andrew Carnegie and J.P. Morgan and Jay Gould and William Randolph Hearst and the Rockefellers, of course. And so, um, you know, these they're called robber barons because it was assumed that uh, that great, you know, there's a great saying that behind all great wealth, there's a great crime, uh, that this was done through uh, means. Hmm. What is, where is that quote from? Oh, you can just Google it. It's a yeah. very famous quote, which like behind every great fortune is a great crime. Interesting. Um, it's not that easy to earn that kind of money, even though like in the internet age, we think, oh, you know, snap. Uh, but it's really funny. If you go on the Wikipedia page, I was just checking this out. They have Mark Zuckerberg as, as, a, as the last robber bear. I would call it quite funny. <laughs> Gilded Age through today. I mean, but yeah. that's, so, that's also, I remember I first learned about the Gilded Age in, in history class. And before I sort of even knew what it was, I just saw on the syllabus, it was like the Gilded Age. And I was like, oh, this is going to be my favorite era to study in history. Like mostly just looking at the word Gilded. I was like, this is going to be you know, fantastic. And, and, you know, I had images of, of high society and, and sort of, you know, like you're talking about the Vanderbilts and, and um, the Rockefellers that it, it felt very romantic to me, you know, before I actually started learning about it and all the, the stuff that lies beneath the guild, as they say. Um, yes. But it is, it is like such a fascinating and such a, I, like romantic is a is a good word for it. I feel like like it just feels so so much like you're swept up in another world when you're sort of reading and learning about these people. And gilded, as you know, is it's the veneer, mm-hmm. you know. So it means that it's not really you're not really looking at a chunk of gold. You're looking at something that is maybe covered with a thin layer to make it look like gold, and that's very true. Um, and the other thing that I think is very interesting, you know, I was a huge fan of Little House on the Prairie growing up. I mean, crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, this was when the first show was on. So um, that Melissa Gilbert was Laura Ingalls. And I literally, and I used to read the books and watch the show and write to all the locations she lived because they've all turned into museums. Remember, this was before the internet. So I had to do a lot of digging to find the addresses. And I was like hardcore serious. You were dedicated. You got it. You got to be dedicated to have a fandom like (laughs) pre-internet. I was literally like, I am going to go visit. I'm going to do a pilgrimage and go see all these places. And um, so I would get like, you know, packages back from these places saying we're open from this to this. And here's some photographs and blah, blah, blah. And here's really what's very interesting. Laura Ingalls Wilder is um, uh, it's, it's contemporary with what was happening in New York in the Gilded Age. And it seems like two different eras in history. But when you think about one era of them staving off Native Americans, trying to stake out a plot of land, you know, that, you know, the government would give them, uh, you know, um, some time and they would, they were called homesteaders to develop the land and create uh, basically, you know, uh, a farm uh, and start to settle sort of these places that were unsettled America. And these were people that, you know, were starving because there would be a famine because of crickets would come and eat Mm. the crop. This was happening at the same time that in New York City, these mansions were being built that were robbing the coffers of uh, Europe and Asia because they would build these mansions and then they would do things like take apart entire rooms 
uh, in of, of chateaus in France, or sometimes the entire buildings, ship them over to the United States and use those pieces, rebuild. They would get artwork, rugs, uh, sculptures, um, you know, all of the, you know, antiques, these these treasures of like sort of the ancient and older worlds from Asia and Europe and ship them over because these people had so much money mm-hmm. that they could outfit their homes and their summer homes with these things. And just remember, all of this stuff was gone slash destroyed within 50 years of it being built. So it didn't even last. And that's what's extraordinary. There's a, there's a really interesting um, vignette of Alva Vanderbilt. You know, she built a house called the Petit Chateau, which is very unlike all of the other mansions. And if you look at that picture, you see the picture. Because up until that time, rich people lived in brownstones. And she decided to create something out of limestone based on French architecture. And um, it looks like a little castle. And it's exactly where Zara is today. And what's really interesting is, you know, I studied architecture. And the firm that I studied uh, the firm that I worked for right after school, I worked for the great grandson of Stanford White, who was one of the preeminent architects of the Gilded Age. Wow. And interestingly, the firm that I worked for redid 666 Fifth Avenue, which is today's 660. I think they got rid of the mm-hmm. 666 because of, you know. <laughs> you know um, but it nothing. used to say 666 on top of it. That's exactly where this house was. So I was just thinking full circle. It is all full circle. So Anyway, so the Petit Chateau used to, to live there. And so she had the house, you know, it took I, it took a while, you know, it was limestone and it, it stuck out from all the other homes. And it was furnished with all of these treasures from the old world. So after she got divorced, she was one of the first society people to divorce her husband. Uh, she also became a suffragette, but she was driving in a carriage down the street as the chateau was being demolished. Just a, just a few years later, and wow. she was thinking, thank God it's being gone. I could care less. To think about the waste, the blood, sweat, and mm-hmm. tears, you know, it's, I think it's extraordinary. There's something very, very poignant about it. So anyway, the Gilded Age was this time where tremendous wealth was created. Uh, the idea of a high society was created uh, in New York City. And uh, Carolyn Astor's. Carolyn Skirmerhorn Astor was sort of the doyen of it all. And she had a list that was created uh, of the 400, which was the 400 most prominent families. Like that was the society list. And she had a ball every year where these 400 were invited. If you were not invited, you are probably not worth it. You didn't have the money. You didn't have the pedigree. You didn't make the The Vanderbilts were not on that list, by the way. The Vanderbilts oh. were initially not on that list. And uh, and she had this ball. But by the way, by all accounts, it was the most boring thing. Everybody hated going, but you had to go. It was like a society thing. It's like, oh, my God. If you're not invited, then you're a nobody. If you are invited, count your blessings and get ready for a boring evening. <laughs> so uh, hang out and, uh, you know, partake of Mrs. Astor's boring whatever it was. And they had these dances called quadrilles and they had like a huge supper laid out. Um, and so it's a very interesting story. This is a backdrop to what we're going to be talking about today, Trolls of the Gilded Age. Alva Vanderbilt, uh, her marrying into the Vanderbilt family changed the entire family because she decided she was going to make the Vanderbilt name uh, a society name. And so she threw, when she realized that they weren't getting invited to these things, 
she threw a ball as soon as the petit chateau was finished she threw a ball and invited all of society a thousand people except for mrs astor um and savage in those, move and in those days and this was on march 26 1883 i believe and in those days you the way that you would become friends is you would call on somebody and leave them your card as a woman. And then they would leave you their card and then you were acquainted. You just didn't like invite somebody to something. Right. And so she decided she created, she was into PR. She was a freaking influencer well before she was planting stories in the press about this was going to be the biggest ball, the society ball, the biggest thing, a thousand guests. It cost $6 million in today's money. Um, and, uh, and by the way, the 400 is really institutionalizing sort of, you know, society. So it would codify behavior and etiquette and tradition. These are 400 people that were at ease with each other. And it was, it was rumored that, that the number wasn't arbitrary. It was linked to the number of people that could be in Mrs. Astor's ballroom. She had a brownstone, uh, at 355th Avenue on 31st street. 34th street where the empire state building is. Mm-hmm. And so Alva Vanderbilt was like, screw that. So she invites all of society except for Mrs. Uh, Astor and her daughter and her daughter had been practicing one of these quadrilles with other girls, with four other girls. So as soon as the daughter realized she couldn't go to the event of, of the, like basically the century it was called the ball of the century she was obviously thrown into like a fit of despair because you have to remember these balls were also not just like sort of place your mark in society and you get dressed up as a ton of money and your powdered wig and you show up, but it's also where young people met each other mm-hmm. where you could find it's kind of, when you think about sort of the Harvard business schools and the, you know, the elite institutions that people go to the, it was the meeting ground. It was like a coming out party, you know, and you would meet, you would sort of informally meet the who's who at these places. So it was an extraordinary book that forced Mrs. Astor finally to show up in her carriage, uh, walk up the steps and leave her calling card, Alva Vanderbilt. It was literally like a massive humbling. Um, And then Alva Alva Bell sent her carriage back over to Mrs. Astor's with a card, with her, a name card with her name on it. And eventually when Mrs. Astor ended up asking her, you know, why did you not invite me? And she said, well, we weren't acquainted, Hmm. which was the absolute etiquette of that time. But it was well known that her whole sort of purpose about this ball was like, they're not going to get away with not inviting my family to this ball. So she was very responsible for bringing a lot of taste and putting that family on the map. Um, And the other thing I will say is during this time, the Americans had so much money that the sort of crumbling sort of aristocrats that were living in these crumbling castles in England were trying to find rich heiresses to marry their sons off to, because what would come with it? We talk a lot about, we look down dowries, but in those days, all of these all of these girls had huge dowries. American right. girls had huge dowries. So you marry an aristocrat, you have $300 million coming with you, which would be, you know, put into restoring Blenheim Palace. So the American girls got a title. Um, you know, they became a duke or a duchess. And the 
these uh, sort of uh, these English, awful English aristocrats that were marrying for money end up getting a bunch of money. And they were generally, you know, loveless marriages and uh, lots of cheating going on on both sides. But it was a way for them to keep up these crumbling kind of these facades that they couldn't afford to keep up in England. Totally. It's interesting. It's like sort of the the intersection and collision of the old money still needing the new money in that way. And, you know, going back, you know, revolutionary American versus British tensions and all that, just like this idea of the rich and the formerly rich still needing the rich and still allying themselves with that, I think is something that, I don't know, it's just interesting to see in a historical context and, and, and how it played out on a social, social stage as well. Yeah, and there was a name for them, and I forget what they were called. Was that called the American Heiresses or... Uh, yeah, that I sounds... Think, I feel like I read a book called The American Heiresses that was like... The princesses, but it's really something that it's funny, which is really such in our DNA, and we like to look at other places and go, oh, I can't believe people pay dowries. I'm like, well, I mean, it was happening here in the best family. So, mm-hmm. so anyway, that was the backdrop. And against this backdrop, you have this unlikely duo that shows up on the scene and is extraordinarily modern in the way that they behave. Um, And I'm going to introduce each of them to you. And then we're going to talk about the kinds of things they said and the crazy things that they did. Uh, It was a socialite named Mamie Fish and her buddy, Henry or Harry Lear. And, uh, and, they were extraordinarily modern. Uh, they were definitely trolls. They insulted, belittled, and put down everybody in society. And it started to become a badge of honor. Like you wanted to be insulted by Mamie Fish because it was like, oh my God, she told me off. And it was like that kind of uh, thing. But interestingly, when Mrs. Astor, who sort of held court, you know, and she was sort of everybody looked to her for, you know, setting this. When she ended up passing away, it was the triumvirate of Alva Vanderbilt, who had by that time established herself in society. She'd gone through a divorce. She's a very fascinating figure, by the way. She had gone through her divorce and remarried all stuff that had not happened. She became a in society before then. She became a suffragette. But it was her Mamie Fish and Tessie Ulrichs, who were the three, they were, they sort of took the place of Mrs. Astor in society and kind of throwing these parties and being the ones that everyone looked up to. But Mamie Fish was a woman that was barely uh, literate. She could not read or write. She was born into, but she was one of the wittiest people you would ever want to meet. She was born into a well-to-do family. She married a man named Stuyvesant Fish, who came from a very old, as you can tell by the names, uh, political families that were related, uh, you know, up and down on either side to important political and industrial figures. He himself was the president, I think, of the National Park Bank. Um, but they, interestingly, had, for all of her sort of abrasiveness, had one of the best and really unique marriages of the Gilded Age. They loved each other so much. They were absolutely devoted to each other. He adored her. He indulged her. They had been childhood sweethearts. And you don't hear about this because in the Gilded Age, many people got married. And uh, as as Mamie Fish would point out, these men were so, all they did was talk about their businesses. They were so boring. And the women were even worse because they didn't even know what their husbands did. And they were just kind of running around and taking care of the house and having teas with each other. 
And they were utterly sort of, you know, having like private lives on the sides, you know, and what's really interesting is Albert Vanderbilt was quite innocent and she didn't know this was happening. And when she divorced Willie Kay, you can look up the old New York Times article. She divorced him on the grounds of adultery and infidelity. And it's really interesting and scandalous and very gossipy, but it feels so modern too. It's very, well, nothing changes, you know, that's Mm. one of the interesting things. Mm -hmm. Nothing changes, but these two were terribly devoted to one another. And it's funny because you would look at a woman like that and think, Oh my God, she was very quick-witted, sharp tongue, intelligent, uh, really did not give a crap what people thought, bored with society, extremely self-aware, uh, very extraordinary in kind of the way that she viewed sort of life, um, and uh, was somebody that you would kind of think of as like, wow, kind of a bully, uh, kind of scary because of the way she would put you down and the kinds of things we're going to go into all her put downs, but she called everyone pet or lamb. She'd be hello lamb or hello pet. Um, And uh, you know, what's really interesting is people didn't know that she was actually quite generous. And in her death, there were some really interesting things that were revealed. And I just wanted to read you uh, about her death. Uh, Like actually she was really a woman of the people, which you could sort of tell by the way, her behavior. So uh, two small pieces out of newspapers. Mamie Fish died suddenly of a brain hemorrhage at her country estate in Garrison, New York. The son remarked that she had occupied a unique position in society. Her personality was most interesting and one of her chief objects in life seemed to be to give pleasure to others. She would throw parties, by the way, all the time. Being a woman of great energy, she was apparently all the time devising some new form of entertainment for her friends. Beyond that, she had a very kind heart and was not only for those to whom she was under social obligation that she was thinking out plans for pleasure, but equally for those whose positions in life were less fortunate. The next article says Mamie died at Glencliff in 1915 and was only after her death that her charitable side was truly revealed. Her servants were particularly fond of her and throwing social conventions to the wind. She happily played cards with her cook in the kitchen. Side note, this never happened. If you look at the life of Alice Vanderbilt, who was Alva's uh, sister-in-law, she would fire people for not dusting properly and would say, that's not a lady, that's a woman. So these Divisions were very, very marked. Um, Stuyvesant continued to live between her three homes and uh, her husband until he too died in 1923. Um, There's a wonderful story of how she heard the story of a young, poor girl that was extremely talented musician. She showed up to listen to the woman play and then completely paid for her education for the next, you know, until she would come out on the other side, like, and become a fully fledged musician. This is stuff that wasn't reported on contemporary, you know, during contemporary times, but she was actually kind hearted, charitable. And the reason why she was so dismissive of society is because she was so incredibly self-aware. She's like, these people are boring. The stuff that they do is boring. Um, And she was really modern, right? Because these dinners would go on for five to six hours that society would have. And sometimes they would start at like 10, 11, midnight, and they would be boring. They would go on. And she said, I'm going to change these to a one hour dinner with three courses instead of eight, you know, something that people really like to eat, (laughs) something delicious. And um, she was, you know, she was described physically as, 
having beady little eyes, matronly, not very good looking. Um, and it was sort of funny. There was a hilarious quote uh, because Henry Lear, who we're going to talk about next, was um, gay, although mm-hmm. his wife, who he married, didn't know it. But very unkindly, some observer said about Mamie Fish, and Henry used to cross-dress, by the way, and he loved doing it. He did it openly. Um, people made this observation about Mamie Fish's looks. Like her friend Henry Lear, she sometimes pretended to be a woman. Oh, brutal. Horrible. And this was actually said during her lifetime. But she was told of being very matronly looking, piercing eyes, a very stern face, heavy set, arched eyebrows. Um, and interestingly, she was against suffrage. She really felt that a woman's place was to kind of support the husband. Very thoughtful, very self-aware, uh, a philanthropist, did, you know, so many people. She made it a point to her staff were employed. She would say, we've got to continue giving these parties because these people need jobs. These are things that did not come up as thoughts in the Gilded Age, you Mm -hmm. know. And remember, these were women that were sending away twice a year to have all of their clothes made in Paris uh, at Worth, which was the famous designer, and shipped over. You would go get fitted twice a year for your summer wardrobe and then your winter wardrobe and have everything shipped over. So That sounds like the life, honestly. Very (laughs) democratic down to earth in her own home, always throwing very, uh, you know, these incredible parties. Okay. So her, you know, and, and the other thing is, I should also point out, she was not as rich as some of these other folks. So she would always say, we only have a few million. So they would all <laughs> respectable poverty. Okay. So she wasn't like the Vanderbilts or, uh, you know, the Ulrichs or all of these people that were the Skirmerhorns and the Astors that were dripping in money um and she was really just known for having a certain amount of money her comebacks her wit her nonconformity, her sharp tongue uh her feuds she got into fights with everybody her parties her caustic comments and the press by the way loved her and she drove you know she and alba vanderbilt drove when cars came out so this is all you know very modern and Mm -hmm. so she became great friends uh with this man Henry or Harry Lear, who was also called King Lear. He was called the fun maker. He was called the court jester. He was a man that was born uh, into sort of, I would say, moderate wealth, lost everything, went into a depression when he was a child uh, and he had to go to work that when it was, you could not be, you know, openly homosexual. And he basically said, I don't want this kind of life. I want to have, you know, gaiety and party. So he Mm -hmm. made up his mind that he was going to become a part of society again. Um, He had great humor. He had a great personality. He was very gay, like the other meaning of the word gay, like happy, Mm -hmm. uh, a great conversationalist. And women loved him. And he understood that. And he actually had a quote that as long as I can stay in the good graces of women, my life is set. So he never worked a job in his life. His living came from being amusing. uh, And that's why he was called the court jester. And so he became attached to these very wealthy women, would help them dress, throw parties, be amusing, make them laugh, um, and made a living that way. And um, he was this debonair bachelor. And people either knew that he was kind of funny 
or they didn't. When I say funny, I mean gay, right? Because mm-hmm. people did not come out. And, and uh, in fact, Stuyvesant Fish, Mamie Fish's husband at one point said to her very early on, you know, the two that adored each other, why are you hanging out with this guy all the time? And she says, oh, him? He's just a, another girl. And then he never brought it up again. <laughs> and so there were some people that knew, I'm sure like the Alva Vanderbilts and the, and the Mamie Fishes of the world knew, but like Bessie Drexel, uh, uh, or I think her name is, sorry, Bessie Wharton Drexel, who ended up marrying Henry Lear, never knew her husband was gay. She was very innocent. Because remember, a lot of these women didn't even, weren't even told about sex. They right. They got it on their wedding night. Okay? Right. Which that horrifying. just sounds like, like literally the most like traumatizing thing you could like do to, like that just, I cringe thinking about that. That's like the whole thing in Bridgerton. You know, have, have you seen Bridgerton? Yep. Uh-huh. But, oh, it's just like, it's horrifying. Like I can't even imagine. <laughs> oh, it's still like that in parts of the world, right? I mean, it's still like that in when you go to other countries because people don't think, you know, they need to, it's just not as, and I wouldn't even call it like particularly conservative. It's just like more innocent in mm. other places where, you know, your parents wouldn't sit down and have that conversation with you. And you just are like, oh, my God, what is happening on your wedding night? You know, like, who is this person? And men would visit prostitutes during those days, you know, uh, very openly. And and in fact, Alva Vanderbilt, it's hard to find, but you can find it. She talks about how shocked she was on her wedding night and how Willie Kay, who is considered by all accounts, a wonderful, handsome, even tempered guy. I mean, he used to go visit prostitutes, right? She's mm. and that's her grounds for divorce. But anyway, so he made himself, Lear made himself, um, you know, really um, indispensable to all of these women. And he, and I'll give you sort of an example. Like he met Carolyn Astor at a party. He was walking down a hall. He was in her 20s. She was in her 60s. And she was, you know, she would come dripping in diamonds. And these women had like pearls that belonged to like Marie Antoinette. As I told you, they bought jewelry that belonged to historical figures. Supposedly this belonged to Cleopatra. They would, their husbands would buy them these things. And uh, she was dripping in diamonds walking down the hallway. And apparently he went up to her, grabbed a bunch of red roses from a vase, handed them to her and said, here, put these on. You need some color. You look like a chandelier. (laughs) she stood there shocked because Mm -hmm. no one spoke to her that way and then there was a parrot cage next to them so he went oh god don't say anything and it took her apparently she was quiet for two minutes and then she threw her head back and started laughing and then she adopted him this was a huge deal because after that day he became like her pet he even lived with her for a while and she adopted him. He would help her throw the parties. He would say, you know, be a little bit more bohemian. Invite this person. She's a showgirl. He would help her with the guests. He would help her with the food. At that time, women didn't go to eat at restaurants. But he was the one that brought Mrs. Astor first, I think in her 60s or 70s, to Sherry Netherlands, and who, and she, and which was the restaurant at the time. People were shocked. Oh, my God. The 60 year old Mrs. Astor sitting here and eating like incredible. So you were not seen in public. And then it became, uh, you openly went to go eat at restaurants. Delmonico's was a big one. So Delmonico's ended up moving down to wall street, right in front of the building where I lived mm-hmm. uh, on William street for many years. But Delmonico's was one of the first restaurants. So that was a restaurant they would all frequent. So anyway, he became then this kind of like, 
you know, what we think of as sort of like a beard today, except he was paid for this in a way that all of the wives of the society women were like, he's so funny. Can you let him stay at your house for free? And I want to read you what he used to get. So this is how he made it. This is what he says. I never paid for one single thing I wear, not even a tie or a handkerchief. Wetzel made all of his clothes for free. This is what he says. He has an idea, which I naturally encourage, that it is a privilege to dress the man who, according to all the newspapers, sets the fashion for American manhood, Harry explained. He never even suggests anything so vulgar as payment for his suits. Caskell supplied him with the latest designs of shirt and pajamas on the same understanding, only asking him as a favor to let it be discreetly known where his underwear came from. Black Star and Frost lent him jewels, an unending supply, for they were always renewing them. Um, I, now, you probably are thinking that clothes are only a small part of a man's yearly expenditure, and that other things must cost far more. My beautiful rooms over Sherry's, that Sherry Netherland, the restaurant, he lived above there, they cost him nothing, for they were part of Tom Wanamaker's per permanent apartment there. And Tom was only too pleased to loan them to anyone as amusing as Harry. His meals were supplied for free um, whenever he chose to take them there. And in the restaurant downstairs, he could entertain as many guests as he chose. For the management was perfectly aware that there was no better advertisement that could exist than Henry Lear's patronage. So he was like the ultimate influencer. He's like, uh, exactly an influencer. He's like an influencer before they even knew that influencing was a thing. And yeah. I, and that sort of, that, that phrase, nothing as vulgar as payment is just like so telling and so such a, such a poignant and pointed phrase. Like that just really sort of paints a picture of, of how he operated in his life. I feel like. Yeah. He was just this guy that lived off of the good graces of other women. And he was witty. He made them laugh. He was their confidant. Uh, one time, uh, you know, uh, Mamie Fish, I'm going to tell you about that time, got into trouble uh, because she got into a fight with somebody. And uh, she was having a huge party to honor a guest that was staying at that person's house. She got into a fight with them and they were like, well, I'm not coming and I'm not bringing the guest. After she's like, you know, it was like the day of the party. And she, <laughs> she called up Henry Lamb and goes, you have to get me out of this land. <laughs> And so, you know, Henry Lair actually came up with a, a concept where he showed up and he said, just make them think that the party's going on. You have to make them laugh to get out of it. So he ended up dressing up as it was for a Duke. The party was for a Duke. So all 200 guests showed up. Um, and uh, at in the middle of the dinner, Mamie Fish said, you're probably wondering where the Duke is. Well, he's not here. I've got you somebody better. And the door opens. I've got you the king of Russia. And this guy comes out wearing Mamie Fish's fur coat. It turns out to be Harry Lear. Uh, and, and when all of these society people, who of course knew them both very well, saw who it was, they all started laughing and everybody forgot about the fact that the Duke never showed up. Mm. Uh, and um, so this irreverence that he had, the way that he spoke to Mrs. Astor, no one spoke to her that way, right? Because it was, they were in a world of social climbers, sycophants. Everybody was trying, you know, same as today. Everyone was right. trying to get their daughter married by the age of 16 and trying to figure out how do I get her into the social register. So um, once he got in with Mrs. Astor, that was it. She loved him. Uh, she even had a box at her opera for him, a, a seat in her box at the opera. 
So here was this gay man. Um, one of his lovers was identified who also was married. Uh, and there's one picture that exists on the internet of the two of them. You can find it. I think his name was uh, something Greenbow. Um, so he was this really, you know, this like wonderful, he entranced me as he was this funny, he had great legs. He was a great piano player. Um, and he decided, you know, as he was trying to figure out how he makes his living to court this young widow, uh, Bessie Wharton uh, uh, Drexler. Uh, and uh, he brought her to lunch to be vetted by Alva Vanderbilt, the triumvirate, Mamie Fish and uh, Tessie Ulrichs, who said, we love her. We'll make her the fashion. We'll take her under our arm. And he proposed to her that afternoon. Um, and they ended up getting married. I want to share this with you to know what kind of man he was, because there's another side to him. Okay. And he had a secret diary. And I have not been able to track down that secret diary, but his ex-wife, after his death, published her own book called King Lear. And she has experts. And that's when she found out he was gay. After his death, she finally realized. Oh, that's what she found out? Oh, yeah. She didn't know. And so, because she was very innocent. And, you know, he would write things like, if only I could wear ladies' clothes, silk and satin and petticoats, all dainty. Um, You know, he would write these things and they're pictures of him of drag right mm-hmm. but i want you to understand what kind of man he was right because there was another side to him he took her to meet these three denizens of society excuse me they ended up oh sorry um they ended up um uh saying she's the greatest will make her a part of society even though she had a ton of money but she was from philadelphia so um after the wedding, they traveled to Baltimore for their wedding night, and she got dressed up in a, you know, a brocade gown. She's a huge heiress. And during multiple times when they were, quote unquote, dating, you know, she had said, like, he's not animal like other men, meaning he wasn't all over her. He wasn't trying to kiss her. You know, it's literally like that, that innocence, you know, like, mm-hmm. she was just like, he was just such a high minded man. And um, so, um, you know, she was so excited during their wedding night, she got dressed up in this rose brocade gown with a diamond brooch. And she put like tons of roses in the room and had, you know, caviar and quails and aspic and his favorite brand of champagne. I should quote, he had people, I should also tell you this. He had champagne and wine cellars that kept him supplied with anything that he wanted, as long as he could discreetly make sure that the Astors had their champagne cellars filled with Mm. the champagne, you know, so he was doing all of this stuff, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and so she had this room. He was hustling. He was hustling. Oh, he was super hustling. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. a job. His favorite brand of champagne and a cabinet of cigars with a gold and enamel watch set beside his plate. And she's waiting for him on their wedding night. And one of the servants showed up at the room and says, um, I need you to know uh, that she was, the servant was really uh, um, kind of embarrassed and said, um, I'm sorry, but Mr. Lear is not coming. Oh. You're going to be eating alone tonight. And can you imagine you're a young bride and you're waiting? And then he shows up five minutes later and he says the following to her. He says, there are some things I must say to you, and it is better that I should say them now at the very beginning so there will be no misunderstanding between us. You heard my orders to the servant, I presume. And she nods. 
Well, I intend that they shall be carried out for the rest of our lives together. In public, I will be everything to you that a most devoted husband should be to his wife. You shall never complain of my conduct in this respect. I will give you courtesy, respect, and devotion, and apparently devotion, but you must expect nothing more from me. When we are alone, I do not intend to keep up this miserable pretense, the oh, farce God. of love and sentiment. Our marriage will never be anything but a marriage in name. I do not love you. I can never love you. I can school myself to be polite to you, but that is all. The less we see about one another, except in the presence of others, the better. And she says, but why did you marry me? And he laughs. She was so innocent. Dear lady, do you really know so little of the world that you have never heard of people being married for their money? Or did you imagine that your charms place you above such a fate? I must tell you the unflattering truth that your money is your only asset in my eyes. I married you because the only person on earth I love is my mother. I want above everything to keep her in comfort. Your father's fortune will enable me to do so, but there is a limit to sacrifice. I cannot condemn myself to the misery of playing the role of adoring lover for the rest of my life. After all, at least I'm being honest with you. How many men in New York, how many among our own friends have entered their wives' rooms on their wedding night with exactly my state of mind, but they prefer hypocrisy to the truth? Side note, he's 100% right. If I am never your lover, we are, when we are alone, at least I will not neglect and humiliate you in public. What is more, you will actually gain by marrying me. You will have a wonderful position in society. As my wife, all doors will be open to you. If you try to accustom yourself to this position and realize from the start that there is no romance and never can be between us, I believe that we shall get along quite well. But for God's sake, leave me alone. Do not come near me except when we are in public or you will be forced for me to repeat to you the brutal truth that you are actually repulsive to me. Oh my God. Now, you may say, why didn't she divorce him? It didn't happen in those days. She was very innocent. I believe her mother was a devout Catholic and she was really under her mother's thumb. So she was like, she was kind of this very soft, innocent woman. And so she was like, I cannot tell my mother this. And mm -hmm. so she swallowed it. And he made a good point. He said, how many of the marriages in society are farces? They might not be gay, but sometimes they married, you know, often they married for alliances sake, not because they love them. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think I don't think sort of the sentiment of what he was saying, like you're saying, like that was not out of the norm. You know, the the directness with which he said it, and the bluntness is probably what is the most surprising. But honestly, it's kind of hearing hearing that account is a little bit. I don't know, it sort of it sort of changes the picture that I had of him in my head a little bit in a way of like. You know, at first, you know, sort of hearing about him as, you know, this like influencer, this hustler, this man who was using his his social skills and his talent as with humor and with connecting and seeing people in that way. Like I, I sort of saw that of a way, you know, as he's a closeted gay man in a time when it is absolutely unacceptable to be that. That was sort of his way of reclaiming some power in that society. You know, it's like he had to find some way to make a mark and, and cut through the noise and using him and his personality and, and just his internal characteristics. That was how he did it. And I, 
I suppose I'm surprised by just the brutality of his honesty and what she's sort of addressing with his wife. But also the more that I think about it, and maybe this is me just sort of getting into psychoanalyzing him a little bit, you know, I, as, as funny and trollish as he was, I can't imagine that him living his life was all that easy, especially, you know, having to do it in secret. So what some of the brutality coming out, you know, what I don't think perhaps wasn't directed at his wife, but was more sort of directed at, the situation in the society and and the way that because of the norms of the time this is what this is how they both just had to live their lives like this is just it is what it is and there's no use beating around the bush with it yeah so i i wouldn't give him such a hall pass i i think he was incredibly <laughs> manipulative and uh but i think he was incredibly manipulative and uh very cutthroat and by the way again you got to remember like People like Alva Vanderbilt married off her own daughter to a, in a miserable marriage, right? So uh, into the Churchill family, actually, in England. And that's also extremely well documented. A lot of the kind of um, shows and things that you see today are based on that marriage. Uh, It was her daughter, Consuelo, who married uh, into uh, the family that owned the Blenheim Palace. She's kind of the model for that. So and you can read about that. And it's and it's like really awful. She showed up at her own wedding crying. And many, many, many years later, and Alva, you know, did pull every trick in her in the book to get her daughter married off because a title was now the only thing that was missing. They were mm-hmm. in society. They had the money. They had the prestige. Now they need to be the Duke and Duchess of whatever. And many years later, Alva apologized to her daughter and said, I am so sorry that I did that too. But her life was ruined by that. Yeah, too little too late at that point. Like, I mean, ruined by in the sense that, you know, she's not like, let me step back a bit. You're not poor and starving and, you know, a 13 year old working in a field ruined, meaning you don't have the happiness that you think that you deserve. Uh, You're married to somebody that doesn't love you and it's clear that it's for your money so but i think the brutality with what he said this was recorded in her diary um and uh you know he basically talks about he goes on to say when i introduced you to those three lady friends of mine i knew when they told you they were going to take you under their wing i knew i had nothing to fear you would be invited to all of the important houses in new york city he said let me be honest with you as much as I wanted to marry you. If they had not given me the approval, I, nothing would have induced me to forfeit my position in society. That's how he made his living. Right. So he was definitely a guy that was fun and like, you know, a total gas, but he was also, he had a giant, you know, he, he was also very shrewd about where he was making his next move. And he had a huge portrait a naked portrait of Robert Gould Shaw III above his bed. <laughs> yeah. It's like, we would be like, mm, how do you not know all of this? But, you know, there are, I mean, uh, listen, my mom is a very innocent person, extremely worldly. I would say very innocent. There are people that their minds are not there. I mean, you and I think, how do you not know? But there are people that don't know. So that was true in the Gilded Age. It's true today. Okay. So, that was a little about Henry Ear. So now that we've got sort of the na- main characters, we've got these two people that are running around to parties, the opera, in this social set where it's party after party. They're in New York City over the sum- uh, over the winter. I think they go to Newport over the summer or the other way around. They're great friends, Mamie Fish and Harry Lear, and they understand each other perfectly. And um, they are, you know, 
they tease each other. And uh, at a party one day, the guests were uh, were guessing uh, their favorite flowers. And um, and also Harry had just married Bessie Drexel. And of course, Mamie knew why he was marrying her. And uh, Harry Lear jumped up and said, I know Mamie's favorite flower, the climbing rose, which I guess was supposed <laughs> to be a dig at her. Like yeah, like social climbing. <laughs> and she jumps up and she goes, and I know yours too, pet. You're the Mary Gold, which I think was a double entendre, like marrying for money. Oh, and gay, you know, very clever, very yeah. clever. <laughs> so always, you know, like they were giving each other the elbow. And once her husband and her jumped up at a dinner to leave the table and Henry Actually, they got up to leave early and Henry Lear jumped up and yelled, sit down, fishes. You're not rich enough to leave first. (laughs) They were always kind of joking with each other. And the interesting thing is, you know, they collaborated on these outrageous parties and crazy stunts and all of these madcap events. Um, And they were two people that were sort of bored in a boring, hypocritical society. And they, they saw sort of New York and Newport society is really vapid and silly and selfish. And um, they, you know, uh, they really just wanted to kind of spice it up. And, um, you know, it's funny because they would do these crazy things. I'm going to now next talk to you about sort of the antics and the insults. And uh, when Mrs. Astor, you know, the doyen of all things, you know, older mm-hmm. and the old guard said, she was quite concerned about the way that they'd become sort of disgusting and rude and everything with younger society. Uh, Mamie Fish goes, Mrs. Astor is an elderly woman. Um, so they were, you know, they were like throwing digs back and forth. So I yeah. want to share with you some of the antics of that time. Okay. So these are some of the things that these guys, the parties and things that they threw together. All right. Number one, they had a party for somebody named the Prince Del Drago of Corsica. And everyone was waiting for the prince to show up. When the guest showed up, he was a monkey dressed up in a uh, like a princely outfit. They had gotten the monkey drunk on champagne. It climbed up on a chandelier and started throwing light bulbs at everybody that was seated. Uh, and um, and Mrs. And they had sat the monkey where Mrs. Astor would normally sit. Oh, my so, God. Like yeah. the guest of honor. <laughs> oh, they're always, always digging at Mrs. Astor, you know, secretly. And then, um, you know, Mamie was the one that sort of pioneered the one hour dinner where it got to the point where people that were coming to her house, you know, would have to hold down their plate with one hand because they would have two bites and the servers would be pulling the plate out from under them. <laughs> Because it would normally, they were six hour dinners and they would go on and on and on. And she would say, only serve them champagne because these people get very sleepy with wine. It makes them dull. And so they would only, instead of eight courses, they would have two to three courses of something you really like, something really good to eat. Um, And that was. Sounds like my kind of dinner, honestly. Yeah, fast. So you would get out, you get people out of your house. Yeah. Every now and then, Henry Lear would show up at a dinner and ask for an egg or a milk. And he would do that to send the servants into a quandary. Because he would say, here's this massive party. Any wine I ask for, any champagne, they have the best of the best. 
ask them for an egg and the whole house is turned upside down. So he would do this to sort of keep himself amused. Um, Mamie fished very modernly, encouraged each of her guests to call themselves by their first names. They didn't do that back then. They would say Mrs. Fish or Mr. Lear. Um, and oftentimes Harry would get dressed up as a woman or a dowager and cross-dress, he loved this, show up at her parties. And they gave, the kind of dinner parties they gave were crazy. This is why Mrs. Astor said this is crazy. And that's, you know, these are, this is not how society should behave. And that's when Mamie was like, Mrs. Astor is an elderly lady. <laughs> um, and they would give dinners where people talk, everyone had to wear baby clothes and talk in baby talk. That was one dinner. Another oh one, they had a baby elephant walk through. Another one, they had all these boys dressed as cats that came walking through, squishing through the guests. Another one, they powdered a dachshund with white powder. It was a party. It was a black party where everybody was wearing black. And then they set the dog loose. So he was going and leaving white powder on all of these expensive dresses and um, these fussy women that were getting really upset. They had a dog party where they invited all of their friends to bring their dogs and the dogs were served fancy menus and one Dachshund ate so much he passed out and had to be carried home. Um, one of my favorites was when they went to an auction. The two of them showed up at an auction and sat in the back and when the auctioneer was saying, this is a genuine Chinese antique, Henry Lear groans really loudly and Mamie Fish covers her face and shakes her head. Everybody turns around to look to see who's doing it. And they immediately straight, you know, have a straight face, but nobody bids on the items. And then they do it again when the auctioneer says, this is a antique from the Chateau de blah, blah, blah. Henry Lear goes, in the back. <laughs> and Mamie Fish goes, oh, I'm about to faint. And everybody turns around. They did this the entire auction. Oh and my God. Everybody turned around. No one saw who it was except for the auctioneer who was furious because no one was bidding on the items. And so finally he turned around and he said, the auction is over until those, the sale is suspended until the lady and gentleman in the back leave the hall. And so, um, cause they were shrieking and they were, and so they were, set they were they were thrown out of the auction hall but they didn't end there Mamie Fish gets out and starts shrieking really loudly so the people inside can hear oh oh look oh my god he can't control the horse oh my god he'll be killed he's going to die this is going to be terrible oh no everybody goes running out and sees Henry Lear and Mamie Fish driving away doubled over in laughter in their carriage um these are the this auctioneer definitely was like not was so done with them. <laughs> this is so modern, okay? Yeah. So here are some of the great quotes and insults. Mamie Fish greeted her guests with always going, Howdy do, howdy do. Or she'd say, Oh, how do you do? I had quite forgotten that I had asked you. So you're like, Oh, okay. Cool. Um, thanks. I feel special. <laughs> and she go, Make yourself perfectly at home. And believe me, there is no one who wishes you there at your home more heartily than I do. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? It became a badge of honor to be insulted by her. Uh, 
Teddy Roosevelt's wife was known for her parsimony. And one day she said, it said she dresses on $300 a year and she looks it. This is a president's oh. wife she's insulting. Yeah. Perfectly. Somebody snubbed her and he said, uh, some man said, huh, Mamie, because, you know, they had their house in, uh, it was called Crossways in Rhode Island. Everyone had their mansion in Rhode Island mm-hmm. and their house in New York. And he said, and he was trying to snub her. He said, Mamie, I never remember the name of your house, Mrs. Fish. It's, it's cross patch, isn't it? She said, well, sweet pet, it's a patch you'll never cross. <laughs> um, and of course, when she heard that Lear was marrying Elizabeth Drexel, well, the marigold is his favorite flower. She would disappear from her own lunches. Uh, she would throw these massive lunches and then tell them, tell them I've changed my mind and just not show up. And this was a great one. Alba Vanderbilt shows up really angry one day and says, and remember, she, Tessie, and Mamie Fish were part of the three that ruled Gilded Age society. Mm-hmm. She says, I have just heard at Tessie Ulrich's lunch last night that you told everyone that I looked like a frog. <laughs> and Mamie looks at her up and down really coolly and says, not a frog, my pet. I said a toad. You oh, look gosh. like a toad. So horrific, even to her friends. Um, as guests that came to her Newport parties, remember, Gilded Age, dressed to the, you know, there's also something she'd say, as she would greet them as they were coming in, here you are again, older faces and younger clothes. And she started to have her orchestra play um, uh, Home Sweet Home at her dinners to hint to everybody it was time to call. She never wanted them to stay more than a few hours. It's like clo- it's like closing time at the bars or something. <laughs> exactly. It's like the lights are on, time to yeah. go. It's literally what she did because these dinners would go on for hours. And sometimes the food would start at midnight or like at Alva Vanderbilt's Great Ball at 2 a.m. And her husband, one day she had a cough and her husband said, you know, who adored her, said, can I get you something for your throat, my dear? And she said, yes, you can get me that diamond and pearl necklace I saw at Tiffany's today. And... Uh, <laughs> would cure me yeah that would cure me and (laughs) she ended up like making fun of other people's you know tea was a big thing and lunches were a big thing she was telling her social secretary the awful food this is why she decided to pare down her dinners to two hours she shared how she had gone to somebody's home and there was a huge production of like you know setting the tablecloth and setting the table and the you know a butler coming over and then his sub butler coming over and she goes and what do you think we were served? Tea and soda crackers. And then we had a slab of nondescript cold meat. And she would say, I'm so tired of being hypocritically polite in society. The papers would breathlessly report who was insulted. And, and she would basically not allow anyone to get away. Like her friends, she didn't care. She would literally insult everybody. Uh, from Mrs. Astor to Alva Vanderbilt. Um, and I love this one. So uh, a friend of hers, I forget, I think his name was Fred Marshall. So she's sitting at dinner with him and she goes, what have you been up to with yourself today, Mr. Fred Marshall, at dinner? And he goes, oh, I've been addressing the inmates at the Asylum for the Blind. And at the conclusion, I asked the audience, 
that I had spoke to for over an hour, what they thought, would they prefer to be deaf or blind? And she says, well, what was the verdict? They were unanimously in favor of um, blindness instead of deafness. And she goes, what? After hearing you talk for an hour? <laughs> I mean, these are harsh, right? These are it's, savage, especially in a savage. society where they're so like social etiquette and social rules. Like the fact that she got away with doing this is she, her and Harry is so crazy. She did not give them a crap. She would never give people wine. She says, we need to liven these people up. Wine makes them sleepy. Only champagne. And, um, there was gossip in Newport around Alice Drexel, who was another, uh, you know, uh, society person that she had a very handsome young male secretary. And uh, so one day they were at an event and somebody leaned over and said, Mamie, have you seen Alice? I've looked everywhere in the house and I haven't found her. And she goes, have you looked under her secretary? <laughs> this is stuff you would not say ever. You can't um, say that to, like, you can't really say that today, you know? Like, it's not even like, oh, with yeah. the times. It's like, nope, that is not appropriate, you know, in society behavior. <laughs> yeah, totally inappropriate. Um, and, you know, she would always have these huge dinners, and somebody one day that was trying to put her down would say, you know, how big is your New York City mansion? I and, you know, she'll, she would say, I can't tell you how big it is because it swells at night. And then somebody else said to her, Oh, Mamie, yours is the largest small house I've ever been to. And she said, well, pet, yours is the smallest large house I've ever been to. And um, dish it right back out. Oh, right back out. And she whenever she would always have these entertainments after dinner. So she would always invite people by saying, come, there will be something besides the dinner. And um, she was. um when people would say, I'm so sorry, Mamie, I have to leave early. My sister isn't well. She'd say, don't apologize. No guest ever left too soon for me. She'd squawk. Her, you know, two-step was a kind of dance they would do. And a guest begged her to stay for one more. Said, Mamie, I want to stay for one more two-step. She said, there are just two more steps. One upstairs to get your coat and the other one outside to your carriage. <laughs> she's and, literally me as a host i'm gonna be like and it's time for bed <laughs> time for everyone to leave my house <laughs> I, know, I know your bedtime is coming up soon so i try to go through these as fast as possible oh no 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 <laughs> <laughs> you're the mamie fish of our no you're not no you could hardly you're way too nice to be the mamie fish yeah um, i think i i lack the i lack the edge to to be able to just fully let rip anything that I'm thinking at any time. <laughs> no, I see you as the Bessie Drexel. <laughs> Aww. Receiving that brutal speech from my husband. <laughs> well, at least I live in comfort for the rest of my days. No, Small victories. And sweet. Very innocent and sweet. Okay. And then her social secretary one day at the end of a party sees there's a, one of the, you know, remember they wore these bustles and these huge gowns and hats and, you know, they were covered from like neck to ankle. And she sees one of the guests sitting on the steps waiting for the carriage at night. And so she runs back in and goes, Mrs. Fish, you've got a guest sitting on the step. And she goes, let her stay there. She'll cool off better out there than in here. Um, and as I mentioned to you, when her husband very, very early on asked 
about Harry. Said, why are you hanging out with this man, Harry Lear? She said, oh, him? He's just one of us girls. And um, she would always talk about people and at a very party, she'd be same old food, same old faces, same old cakes. And she would always talk about how New York, New York society, both of them was Harry and Mamie, vapid, silly, uh, you know, really needed to be shaken up. Um, and uh, there was a hilarious, you know, one of the big issues, uh, one of the big sort of uh, things, like kind of coups that she pulled off is, you know, they came to be known for having a reputation for stirring things up and being very loud. And as I told you, Mrs. Astor looked down on them and made a comment and said, I am very concerned about how society isn't, uh, you know, they aren't society anymore. They are vulgar. These vulgar entertainers, she's literally talking about Mamie Fish and Henry Lynch. They're vulgar and rude and loud, you know? And so there was somebody that was throwing a party for J.P. Morgan in Newport. And he invited Stuyvesant Fish, Mamie's husband, mm -hmm. but not Mamie. And he, and he invited Bessie Lear, but not Henry Lear. So Mamie realizes she didn't get invited. And Henry realizes he didn't get invited. So they rush over to each other because they're best friends. And they're like, you didn't get invited. You didn't get invited. And he's like, she's like, well, let's see about that. So she goes over to the guy's house and is like, I, why didn't you invite me? And he like apologizes and says, listen, I cannot invite you because you guys are really disruptive. And this is really a special evening. And I cannot take that chance. And she's like, oh, is that so? Well, let me tell you, pet, unless you invite us, we will tell everyone your cook has smallpox. And oh. they rival musicale. And let's see where everyone will go. He rescinded and he basically went ahead and gave them each a invitation and said, please stay out on the porch during the music while. <laughs> please. please don't disrupt this because it's expensive and it's important. And so because people would go to their parties, they wanted to see what was going to happen next. They knew they were what all of society was bored. I mean, these are people that were throwing five million dollar parties. And like all of Fifth Avenue, you know, Upper Fifth Avenue would be shut down and all of the poor people would be like they would have police lining the roads because the poor people would show up to see the costumes. These were huge, like mega events that the New York Times covered. Alba Vanderbilt's ball is covered um, in the New York Times. So these things were happening. So these two were sort of ex two extraordinary figures that were trolls sort of well before their time. They were throwing parties, shaking things up, uh, you know, insulting their friends, insulting their enemies. Their exploits were sort of breathlessly chronicled in the New York Times and other newspapers. And, you know, this bored society was just delighted with what they were seeing. Um, and so, of course, at the end, you know, uh, you know, Mamie ended up dying. I think it was in 19, I think it was in 1915. And uh, Harry, I think he was in Paris when he, and he ended up dying, I think, very sad and alone. Something happened that kept him abroad. He could not come back to New York. And I do remember, I couldn't find the quote, but I do remember reading this years ago. Mamie Fish had written him a letter and said, 
oh my God, society is so boring without you, pet. <laughs> All of our friends are more boring than ever. You must come back. But he could not come back and he ended up dying and uh, abroad. And uh, of course, and all of this is, I think, in the New York Times as well, the obituary. But these two people were made a mark on Gilded Age society. And it is extraordinary because of how modern. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes you think maybe this was going on with other people and stuff, but clearly it didn't rise up to the top the way that these two did. Uh, And these two ended up becoming such like... You know, people that were not only feared and they were bullies, they were bullies and they were trolls, but you still wanted to go to their parties and you were probably scared of them. At the same time, it was considered a mark of like a badge of honor to be insulted by uh, Mamie Fish. So two extraordinary people. Totally. And I think sort of the thing that I'm left with, too, is this sense of like modernity that we have for them uh-huh. that we, so we've been talking about, but also this, this sense of like of timelessness and sort of like, this is, this is just human socialization in some ways, you know, like it makes me think of how in Pompeii, like written on the walls in Pompeii, there's like yo yes. mama jokes, basically, you know, it's yes. that same sort of idea that like there's just like, even though the modern definition of trolling and the, how we act on the internet and we, you know, we've talked about TikTok and everything and, and, even though some of these things seem so new and so connected with technology and social media, it's like people have been pulling this crap for centuries, millennia. Like, (laughs) I think what's extraordinary about this though, is in high society, everybody was trying to fit in Mm -hmm. and no one dared kind of, I mean, the most they would do is something like Alva Vanderbilt who really was, uh, you know, I look at her and I really kind of, relate to her. I mean, she was somebody that bucked tradition in every single way and said, you know what, you're not going to have me at your party. I'm going to throw a bigger party. She was very strategic. I'm going to throw a bigger party, not invite you and have you come crawling to me Mm -hmm. to come to my party. You guys all build brownstones. I am going to show you that I have better taste than all of you. I'm actually going to build a French chateau on Fifth Avenue where Zara is now. I literally, I used, I went there once and like literally cried. I stood on that corner of 54th and 5th and just was like, but also mm-hmm. like Zara is here where this amazing building was. Right. And then also, you know, where Bergdorf Goodman is, that was where her brother-in-law was the largest house in New York. Cornelius Vanderbilt II's house took up that entire block that was also there. Wow. Um, and so, you know, when you think about these times, she, you know, she bucked it to get into society, but she was still playing within their rules. Mm-hmm. These guys didn't give a crap. They were st- showing up at parties and just like making fun of people, disrupting things, throwing a bomb, uh, you know, go- going to people's parties and ruining them just to like have fun. And at the same time, you see their personalities distinctly. Henry Lear, a little bit of a kind of a, you know, not a very nice guy underneath it all. And, you know, it seems like he did some things that were cruel uh, and probably for survival, but you look at Mamie Fish and she had a heart of gold, you know, mm-hmm. somebody that would sit in the kitchen and play cards with her cook, uh, which was not something that was done and kind to her servants and made sure they were employed. And remember, she was barely literate herself, but she came from a very good home. So extraordinary. I highly encourage everybody to look into the lives of these two phenomenal historical figures who are so modern and so funny. A great starting book is uh, the book called Fortunes 
children. Um, and I'm just going to look up the name uh, of the author. It's, for you. it's Arthur Vanderbilt. I Arthur just, Vanderbilt. I was Googling it. I've added it to my Goodreads list personally. <laughs> yeah, it, and you know what? If you want to get the audiobook, because they actually do the voices. And so it has Mamie Fish being like, a, a toad, pet, you look like a toad. And so it's like he does all of the voices. And it tells you about the five generations of Vanderbilts all the way to Gloria Vanderbilt, who, uh, you know, as you know, is Anderson Cooper's mother. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, it's very, very interesting how the wealth. It's also a cautionary tale. The wealth was made over two generations. Uh, Cornelius Commodore Vanderbilt made it. His son doubled it. No one added to it after that. After that, it was spend, 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 spend. And it was gone in two generations. Those phenomenal mansions gone. All of the art lost or auctioned off. I, I have asked historians, what happened to all of that stuff? What happened to the rugs and the statues and the paintings and the jewelry? And they're like, they're scattered all over. <clears throat> scattered, lost. I mean, it's mm. extraordinary. You think about the waste. It was a wasteful time. It was truly wasteful time. But... Anyway, with that, we come to the end of Trolls of the Gilded Age. I loved this one. So this was a fun one. So glad that everybody that joined us joined us. Um, it's a topic that I obviously love and I could go on talking about forever. These two of my favorites out of the Gilded Age. Um, and many of the places that they frequented are kind of, you know, they're around, or at least you can go and look at the places where they were, uh, and the remnants of them in the of New York City and Newport, Rhode Island. So I hope that this will encourage people to look into these folks and uh, some of these personalities. So Olivia, as always, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I loved this. This was I'm literally I'm about to download. Um, fortune's children with the audiobook because i want yeah i just want to keep listening to it <laughs> you're gonna love it um and we will be back next week uh we've got one of two amazing guests and i'm gonna tweet that out as soon as i find out who it is uh it's somebody that could be potentially a really big one but uh we will share that next week and everyone else have a phenomenal week thank you so much for joining us take care everybody